we're continuing through the Bible, uh, we are going to be looking at the book of Titus, which is one of the Apostle Paul's shortest letters. Uh, now, Titus is uh, one of Paul's prison epistles. He is writing to Titus while he's in prison, Tip, probably around the same time he's writing to Timothy. Uh, Timothy and Titus were both uh, co-laborers with Paul in the ministry. They traveled with Paul throughout his missionary journeys, helping him start churches and do a lot of things. And so Paul is writing to Titus, who, after he spent some time with Paul helping spread the gospel, he has been called and led by God to go to the island of Crete and begin a church. This, this letter is the only letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church planter. Now, I was thinking, what about Timothy? Well, Timothy, yeah, he was working with Paul, but he was, when he left Paul to begin his ministry, he went to establish churches. He went to churches that had already existed, had already been thriving and doing well, and he went to continue the ministry there. While Titus is going to an area where there are a few house churches, there are some believers, but no uh, really believer of Jesus has gone there to specifically preach the gospel. It's just kind of spread there as people move there. So he's going to a brand new area, a brand new church, a, br a brand new island to begin this new ministry. Now Crete was part of the Greek empire and it is considered to be one of the most morally corrupt places in the ancient world. Crete was an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and it was, it was populated by people who were fleeing some violent, some sinful, some very difficult past. Uh, these were, were, were very violent people. Most of the people on the island were hired mercenaries. These were men who had been hired by landowners or wealthy individuals or even governments to overthrow coups or to fight battles or to just murder people just for the sake of murdering people. So it's a, it's a pretty rough crowd. Uh, it's, it's not really an ideal place to start a church. Hey, you know, God comes to Titus and says, hey, Titus, I want you to go to this, this violent, morally corrupt island populated by murderers and preach the gospel to them. I'm glad I didn't get that call. I'm glad God called me to Roanoke and not somewhere like the island of Crete. Now, historians uh, say that the, the people who were on the island of Crete were constantly drunk, and lying was a way of life. In fact, one of the Greek words for liar is kratizo. It literally means to be a Cretan, to be someone from Crete. They were, they were known as liars. Uh, Greek historians, uh, Greek historian Polybus, he says that there was nowhere in the ancient world where politicians were more corrupt than the island of Crete. Now that's the ancient world. He obviously never saw American politicians, but he says there, there are no politicians in the ancient, no place in the whole ancient world where politicians were more corrupt than the island of Crete. Because again, they're all just liars. Public policy on Crete always favored people in power. Again, kind of reminds me of America, where public policy always favors those who have authority, who have wealth, who have power. Uh, even, even Paul knew how bad Crete was. Look at verse number 12 in uh, Titus chapter 1. He says, one of them, a prophet, or says one of themselves, uh, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. So what he says here is there's a, there's a, a prophet from Crete. There's a, a person from Crete who told me that people from Crete are, are liars, they're evil, they're idle gluttons. That's, that's kind of harsh coming from the guy who said I'm the chiefest of sinners. But remember, it's not Paul saying that. Paul's not saying everybody on Crete is a, is a lying, evil, lazy bum. He goes, 
somebody from Crete told me this. I'm not saying that's who you are. I'm just saying that's what people think about you. So the, peop- the island of Crete was a, was a very rough place. And so if you think about it, Paul could be describing our culture. How do you know if a politician is lying? He's talking. Whatever he says, you know he's, he's lying. Now, he may not be blatantly out and out lying, but he's, they're usually telling you what you want to hear. They're telling you what, you th- what they think you want to hear. And, you know, it seems like every news anchor on TV is a liar today. You know, there's, how do you, there's, there's no news source that you can trust for 100% of the truth. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. What about Fox News or OAN? They're all bad. Because they all have their slant of the truth. So they may not be blatantly lying but they're telling you their version of the truth. Fox News and those others, they tell you you the right-wing conservative view of the truth. And of course, CNN and MSNBC tell you the the liberal view of the truth, but they're, they're not telling you the whole story. They're telling you what they think you should hear or what they think you want to hear. Uh, They tell the truth according to their perspective. People in our culture, are very self-focused, they're very selfish, and they decide what their own definition of morality is, what their own definition of evil is. And it used to be just that, you know, you had the, the church or believers who had one definition of morality and, and one definition of what was right and wrong, and then, of course, the world had their own. But it's even, it's spread to the church, there are pastors who, who I have I've, 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 I've known or I've heard or I've listened to some of their stuff just to see how crazy they are that talk about how morality is subjective. What the Bible says isn't always black and white. You have to apply it to your life and your culture and your understanding of what's happened in the world. And that's just not true. There's one, one guy I was listening to who uh, he's very uh, pro-LGBTQ, very pro, very liberal uh, preacher. And he was getting up and he's told this ridiculous story about how Jesus, when he called the woman uh, a dog, when the woman comes to him and he goes, you know, uh, it's not good for me to give bread to the dogs. And he's like, he was, he was, he was a he was calling her a racist name. Jesus was being a bigot in that moment. But this woman spoke truth to power, and Jesus listened to this colored woman and repented of his racism. And for and I'm like, that is just so crazy. That's not, first of all, in the context, that's not what it means. I don't have time to get into it, but I can show you biblically how that guy's an idiot. Uh, just your mind makes you think that guy's an idiot. But then he, he went on to say that, you know, white people may not like that, but he, you get to view Jesus through your cultural experiences. Here's what he says. He's, he's, a, he's a Hispanic gentleman. He said, I view Jesus through the lens of a Hispanic immigrant. And so everything I, I read about Jesus, I apply as me being a Hispanic immigrant and how white people treat me. And he said this, he goes, I view Jesus that way. My Jesus may be wrong, but it's my Jesus. No. If your Jesus is wrong, you're wrong. Then you're, you know, Jesus isn't God. You are your God because you are shaping him to be how you want to be. So this, this idea that we can determine our own morality and we can decide what's right and wrong, and we get to determine what's good and evil and what's sin and what's not sin, is, is ridiculous, but it's even in our Christian culture. where People say, you know what, I, I get to decide what's, what's sin for me or what is sin for you may not be sin for me. It's sin for you to have an affair on your wife, but not me because my wife doesn't treat me well. So what the Bible says. And so this whole idea that we choose on morality, we choose what is right and wrong, it's, it's, it's really what our culture is like today. And if a lazy glutton doesn't describe our culture today, I don't know what does. 
Employers are having a hard time finding people who are willing to work because they just, now I, I know a lot of it's with the COVID thing and the sick, and again, I'm not getting political here. I don't want to talk politics, but the whole unemployment thing, it, it's just, it's, it makes you make more money staying home and not working. So why work? And I don't blame them. I remember when it first hit my brother, uh, he worked in a restaurant, he was a bartender, um, and he got laid off, and then they, add, they offered him his job back, but his hours were going to be cut, and he's like, I'll make more money staying home and collecting unemployment than working. So no, and I understand some of that stuff, but eventually he got, he got, his, he got another job, and he's working now. So, but there are people who are like, I'm just going to stay home and, and wait for a check from the government instead. And so it's, it's, people are just very, very selfish, very lazy today. And it makes the book of Titus incredibly relevant to us today. How do you, as a child of God, as a believer in Jesus Christ, how do you live out your faith in a culture that is, is totally opposite of your How do you walk with God and how do you live for God in an immoral culture? How do you respond when Christianity is consistently despised and belittled? When the culture you live in finds your faith irrelevant and offensive? Paul is writing to Titus to answer those questions. Paul has one concern for this book, that truth leads to godliness. So then in mind, let's start looking in Titus chapter 1. Look at verse number 1. It says, Paul, a servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. Now, that phrase, truth after godliness, literally means in the Greek, truth that leads to godliness. Truth that produces godliness in your life. And that's a theme that comes up over and over again in this book and in this letter. Truth that leads to godliness. But another reason that Paul is writing this letter to Titus and to us is to show us the difference between truth that leads to godliness and religion. Because there's a difference. There's a difference between truth that leads to godliness and false religions. And, and actions that lead to ungodliness. So God's, God's purpose for the gospel. You know, we, we, we as believers, we understand that the, the, what the gospel is. The gospel is the truth. That Jesus became a man. God became a man in the form of Jesus. He lived a perfectly sinless life because we never could. He did what we couldn't do and completely obeyed the law. He died in our place. He allowed the wrath of God for my sin and your sin to be poured out on him. He took the punishment we were due after living the life we never could have lived. He died instead of us. He went to hell and rose again three days later to redeem us to God the Father. Then he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God and indwelled us with the Holy Spirit power. That's the truth of the gospel. But the gospel is more than just the truth that saves us. Yes, it saves us from eternity in hell. It saves us from condemnation. But God's purpose of the gospel, because look, if the gospel was only meant to save us, God would have never given us the Holy Spirit, and he never would have left us here after salvation. He would have gotten saved and poof, vanished into heaven. But God's purpose of the gospel is not only to save us, but it's to create a, a God-loving and God-like people on this wicked, sinful planet that shows the world what true godliness looks like. When, when God saved us, he did it more than just to give us a home in heaven. He did it to change the world through us to use us to share the gospel, to spread the gospel, and to show the world what it looks like to truly live for God. 
You know, when Moses stood before Pharaoh, demanding that Pharaoh let the Israelites go, and, you know, we all seen the, the story of, you know, uh, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston saying, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And he did say, let my people go. But you know what he said after that? He said, the Lord's God, of the, said the, thus, this says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. He didn't say, just let them go so they can have freedom. I just want to save them from slavery. Because no, 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 I'm saving them from slavery, but I'm saving them to me. I'm saving them to worship. I'm saving them to service. Yes, I want to deliver them from bondage, but I've got something for them to do as well. What God saves us from is just as important as what he saves us to. He saved us from hell, but he saved us to him. He saved us from condemnation, but he saved us to serve him and be his ambassadors to the lost and dying world. And you can tell true religion from false religion by how it produces godliness in your heart. You know, true religion, true godliness isn't busyness. It isn't conformity to a list of man-made rules. Godliness in your heart is something that happens on the inside, but it's seen on the outside. There were a, a lot of false teachers in, in Crete uh, during this time that Paul's writing, and, and Paul says that true gospel, the true truth of the gospel produces a godliness in your heart that is evident to everyone around you. False religion keeps you busy. It fills your schedule. It tells you, learn this, do that, don't do that. Use these words, not those words. And so Titus shows us why the gospel produces godliness in a way that nothing else can. And it shows you why every other religious approach simply will not work and it forces you to ask yourself if your faith is true. So with that in mind, let's, let's jump in and look at number one, how the gospel produces godliness. How the gospel produces godliness. Get your Bibles open at Titus 2. Start reading verse number 11. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and for the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you. See, Paul tells us there that it, it is the grace of God that brings us salvation. And we, we know that, we've taught that, we believe that you are saved, not because of anything you've done or anything you could have done or because you earned it or deserved it. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. You do not deserve salvation. You do not deserve reconciliation to God the Father. You didn't deserve for Jesus to die on the cross and shed his blood for your sins and pay your sin debt and rise again three days later. We don't deserve that. That is God's grace. All because of him, nothing because of us. All we had to do was accept it. That's it. So if you are saved this morning, heading to heaven this morning, the only thing you did to accept it was understand the truth and believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for you. That's it. Everything else he did. You did nothing. It's all of God's grace. So Paul says it's the grace of God that brings us salvation but it's also the grace of God that teaches us how to live a godly life. Look what he says again in verse number 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. How do you, look, in 
we can understand our world is wicked. It's terrible. It's full of, of selfishness and, and filth and, and lust. And just, it's, it's a, you can't even watch TV anymore without seeing stuff you shouldn't see. You can't drive down the street without seeing things you shouldn't see and, and hearing things you shouldn't hear. And just, it, it's a terrible, ungodly world. So how do you live a godly life in a godless world? How do you deny ungodliness? How do you deny worldly lust? How do you live for God? How do you live a righteous life in this wicked world? It is not by trying harder. It's not by having strong willpower. It is only through the grace of God. God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. See, Paul says that the grace of God, when we understand and we accept the grace of God, it fo forces us to focus our attention in three different directions. Look again at verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of, our, of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. See, what Paul says there is the grace of God, it forces us to look upward to the glorious God who gave himself for us and, and, and is coming back one day to look back to the price that he paid for our sin and to look forward to what he is doing in our life and making us to be. See, how does this produce godliness for us? Because when we, when we, I'll go through them each one at a time. When we focus upward to the glorious God, to the majesty of God, to the spectacular nature of God. When we focus upward, it redirects our worship. A sin problem always starts with a worship problem. See, in Romans, Paul starts talking, he's talking about sin. And he's talking about where sin came from and how original sin began. And he says that the original sin that started all this mess we live in was that we give the glory that is due God to created things. Look at Romans 1.22. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Bird, four-footed beast, and creeping thing. See, the word glory there in the Greek means weight or importance. Paul says, we sin because we give importance that belongs to God. We give glory that belongs to God to something else. We, we can't be happy without money in our bank account. We can't be happy without a family together. We can't be happy without respect or, or pleasure or creature comforts. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But Paul says, when we give them the weight that is due God, we are sinning because we're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Sin is misdirected worship. It's giving glory that is due God to something else. And when we do that, we rearrange our lives to live for those things instead of living for God alone. So to change sin at the heart level, and that's where God wants to deal with it. You know, we can, we can stop the action of sin, but if we don't change the heart of sin, then we're never really going to change. We may be able to resist sinning for a while, but eventually we're just going to fall back into our old, hab old habits and we'll sin this way or we'll find new ways to sin. So it's not just I got to stop doing these things. It's I've got to change my heart. Because if I change my heart, my desire for sin, then I'll stop sinning. So to change at the heart level, it means we have to start by changing what we worship. The gospel redirects our worship because it shows us that God is greater 
and more glorious and more desirable than any of our idols, than any of the things we think we have to have on earth. When we, when we focus backwards, the gospel restores our gratefulness to God. Look at, again, in Romans 1, Paul, he's talking about original sin. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, because although they knew God, they knew about God, they did not glorify him or give thanks to him as God. When we are unthankful to God, we're not only robbing him of the glory that he is due, but we are doing it because we think we can do better without him. I don't need God to help me in my job. I can do my job myself. I can make money myself. I don't need God. I don't need God to help me with my family. I can do them on my own. I can handle this. I can do whatever I need. I don't need God for this area or that area of my life. We think that we don't need God because we can do a better job. And that is pride. And pride is at the root of every sin. When we are thankless towards God, we forget everything we have came from him. Everything we own came from him. Every gift, every talent, every ability, every dollar, every everything. Because we can think, well, I, I went to school, I went to college, I got a degree, I got a good job, I, I work hard for this job, I make the money, so, so all this stuff I have, that, that house and that car and, and, and all, those, all those trinkets, all those things, they're all mine because I earned them, I got them, I worked for them, it's my stuff. And we forget that, you know what, the only reason we have the talent and the knowledge to go to school or to, to get that job or to, to make that money and to work is because God gave it to us. Everything you have is God's, no matter what it is. Well, no, I, you may have bought it with your money, but you had got that money because God gave you the ability to earn that money. God allowed you to be born in a country that gave you the opportunities to get that education, to get that job, to make that money, to buy that stuff. It's God's. And when we forget that, we become unthankful. We forget that our, our breath, our life, our possessions, our talent, everything we have comes from God and thanklessness is forgetting that. So the gospel transforms us by pointing out our inabilities, by reminding us that we couldn't save ourselves. We were hopeless we were helpless. We were condemned to an eternity in hell. But Jesus did what we could never do. Lived the perfect life. We could never could have done that. That was the whole purpose of the law, was to show us our inability to not sin. Our inability to, to not live for ourselves. And so the law wasn't to prove that you, you do these things, you can earn God. The law was to show us you can never earn God's favor. So Jesus said we could never, he lived a perfect life, completely obeyed the law, completely fulfilled the law, lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died in our place. He died the death you were due. When Jesus hung on the cross and allowed God to pour his wrath for sin out on Jesus, that should have been you. But Jesus took your place. He died for you. He was buried for you and he rose again to redeem you to God the Father. He did what you could never do. And the gospel reminds us of that. The gospel reminds us, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter if you were, were born in church and you've been to church your entire life and you memorized all the, all the books of the Bible when you were in a one and you've, you've got every Bible verse memorized and you, you read the Bible every day and you read it through once a year or twice a year every year and you know everything about the Bible and you've got a Bible degree and you've got all this. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you are or what you've accomplished. God saves you in spite of you. You are saved by God's grace, not because you earned it or deserved it or are worthy of it, because you never will be. None of us will be. 
We are all undeserving, deserving of hell, but God in his grace saved us. And so the gospel makes us look back and say, and remember, God did for me what I could never do. And it causes us to be thankful. When we focus forward, the gospel raises our expectations. See, in the gospel, we see not only what God did for us, but we see what God is making us into for his glory. In 1 John 3, 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Look, because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ and his grace on our lives, we aren't what we used to be. Praise God, I'm not what I used to be. I'm not where I came from. I'm not my past. Look, my past is messed up. And I tell you that all the time, and I don't think y'all believe me, and maybe one day right before I die, I'll tell you how bad my past really was so that you can be shocked and then I'm dead and who cares, all right? Uh, I'll do a video message you can watch at my funeral and I'll tell you how bad I really was. I was bad. But I'm not that anymore. You know why? Because of the grace of God, I am a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. I'm not what I was, but I'm also not what I'm going to be. See, the Bible says that when we accept Jesus as our Savior and the Holy Spirit moves in, God begins to work on us to conform us to the image of Jesus. So that when not only God, but people look at us, they don't see us and our problems and our faults. And our, they see Jesus. Now, that's not going to happen until we see him face to face. When you see Jesus face to face, you're perfect, all right? The moment you close your eyes in death or hopefully he comes back to receive us as his bride and the trumpet sounds and we all get to join him in the air. and spend, I mean, the moment that happens, but until that happens, until you either close your eyes in death or he comes back, you're not perfect. You're going to struggle with sin. But we should struggle with sin. We shouldn't just give in to it. Because we look at our life and say, God, I'm, I'm not what I was. I'm not what I want to be. But Lord, because of your grace and your Holy Spirit and your salvation, you're working in me to make me what I should be. You're conforming me to your image for your honor and for your glory. See, we will never be sinless on this earth, but we can, through Jesus, we can live a life where we sin less. You're never going to be sinless, but you should be sinning less today than you were 10 years ago, or one year ago, or one week ago, but I know we all go up and down, so maybe not. These are the things that deliver us from sin at the heart level. This is where in verse 14, Paul says, when we focus on these things and realize these things, we become a person who is eager and zealous for God to do good works for God. See, religion can't do that. Religion can't make us into that person. Chapter one, Paul deals with the false teachers at Crete. So look back at verse number, chapter one. <clears throat> Start reading in verse number 10. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. If that doesn't talk about some of the false teachers we see in our culture today, some of the prosperity gospel people or the legalism people, there are unruly and vain talkers and deceivers whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Again, they're doing it for themselves. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may not may be sound 
in the, in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth unto the pure things that are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and to every good work a reprobate. See, Paul here, he, he lists some, some error, and he uses pretty strong language here. He doesn't say, hey, when you, when you think someone's a false teacher or think someone's you know, preaching a false gospel, maybe just leave them alone. You know, let them do their own thing. No, he says you rebuke them sharply. You point them out. You call them out. You shut them down. You do whatever you have to do because they are sending people to hell. And so he's listing these heresies and these, these false religions that, that characterize false religions today. And that leads us to point number two. You know, we saw, number one, religion, uh, uh, that we saw, number one, that the gospel produces godliness. Number two, religion produces godlessness. Godlessness. See, religion can't produce godliness because it always emphasizes adherence to rules instead of true transformation. It uses God, Paul says here, for dishonest gain. God is a means to an end. He's a means to a new car, a better house, a better life. He's a means to, he's even a means to eternity in heaven. Religion leads to the opposite of godliness because instead of gratefulness that godliness produces, it produces pride. Religion makes you say, look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. Look why I am better than other people. If you are think, here's the thing, if you think you are going to heaven because of anything you have done, except saying, God, save me a sinner, if you're like, I'm going to heaven because, yeah, I got saved, but I also did this, 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 this. If you think, I'm going to heaven because of anything I've done, you are believing a false religion. Because you aren't going to heaven because of anything you've done or could do or would do or whatever. None of us are. We are going to heaven strictly because of what Jesus did for us. Because of his grace on our life. And if you think, well, yeah, Jesus died for me and I accepted his grace, but I also deserve it because I did this. That's pride. That's sinfulness. Religion causes us to set standards that we can't live up to. And when we fail, we live in despair. So instead of producing godliness, pride and despair lead to sin. Instead of surrender, religion calls us to make a partial commitment to God. Salvation becomes a negotiation. You do things that cause God to let you into heaven because of what you've done for him. Because of that, there's a limit because God saved you because of what you did. So yeah, he did the hard work, but you did something to earn it. Then because of that, you earned your salvation. So you don't have to give God everything. You don't have to give God your whole life or your whole devotion or whatever. You can limit what you give to God. But if he saved you, if you understand he saved you when you had nothing and could do nothing and were going to hell no matter how good or bad you were. He did for you what you could never do and he saved you despite of you. Then you understand that everything belongs to him. Your life, your family, your talent, your treasure, everything you have is a gift from God. Religion causes you to worship things and use God instead of worshiping God and using things. See, religion causes you to negotiate with sin instead of hating sin. You, you're, you're concerned with sin so you can avoid punishment. So you, so you end up asking yourself, how much can I get away with before God punishes me for my sin? How much can I get away with and still be okay? See, Godliness makes you hate sin, especially 
your sin. See, we're great at hating the world's sin. We hate abortion, right? And we should. It's murder. It is ending the life of a person created by God in God's image. It's wrong and wicked and we should hate it. But I should hate my pride and my temper and my arrogance more than I hate that. Because, yeah, that's wicked and vile and, and disgusting. But my sin hurts God just as much. We hate other people's sin, but godliness makes us, yes, we hate that sin, but I hate my sin more. We hate, they hate sin because of what it does to God. Because of what it does to his glory, his creation, his son, and mainly because of what it does to our relationship with God. See, God says, if you have iniquity, if you have sin in your life, unconfessed sin, and iniquity is not just sin. Iniquity is sin that you think you are justified in committing. And we're great at justifying our sin. We are wonderful at saying, yeah, I did wrong, but... I did wrong, but, you know, you can tell because it's in your, own, in, in, your own fa in your own life you do that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know that I, I was late or I did this, but. I know I said something to you that hurts your feelings, but you made me get to that point. So, yeah, I did wrong, but I had the right to do wrong. That's what iniquity is. And God says if we have that in our life and we, we think we have the right to sin, he says, I won't hear you. Sin breaks your fellowship with God the Father. That's the worst thing that sin does. And when we realize that and understand that, we should hate sin because of what it does to our relationship with God. See, <clears throat> sin, religion keeps you busy following rituals and obeying commands, but it, it never curbs your appetite for sin. Paul says that a lot of religious people in Crete claim to know God. But then he says in verse 16, but they still deny him. Here's what he's saying. Their lives are religiously crazy, but their heart is detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. The gospel changes that. See, the kindness of God leads us to true repentance by refocusing our worship, by restoring our gratefulness, and by raising our expectations of what God's doing in our lives. Charles Spurgeon said this, he goes, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. See, Christianity isn't turning over a new leaf. Christianity isn't trying harder. Christianity is the power of God for a new life because your old life, your old person is dead. We are crucified with Christ when we are saved and we are raised again to new life. Old things are passed away. We are a new creature. Not because we deserve it or we're trying for it or we're working for it, but because of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and the grace of God that's been bestowed to us. See, Christianity is the power of a new life. It's not resolving to live better. It's the resurrection of a new life in Christ. So you don't need to try harder. You need a new heart and the power of the Holy Spirit. See, religion says things like this. Religion says, don't sleep with your girlfriend, read your Bible instead. Don't look at that website, just pray harder. Don't lose your temper, temper just witness to your friends. And look, all those things are bad things to do and all those things are, are good things to do. Instead, we shouldn't be having premarital sex or having an adulterous affair or looking at bad websites or losing our temper. We shouldn't be doing any of that. We should be praying more, reading our Bible more, witnessing more. But those are all good things that we should do and bad things we should avoid as followers. But the gospel doesn't say, don't do those things. Instead, the gospel says, you don't need to do those things because you have me. You don't need 
to do those things, to fulfill some, fill some void, because you have me instead. You don't need to get drunk because Jesus offers a better refuge than alcohol. You don't need to lose your temper because God is in control of your life in every situation. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus changes anything, everything. It changes our life, it changes our desire, it changes our wants and our needs. So in light of those things, Paul tells us, urges us to do two things. First of all, he urges us to evaluate the religious teaching you receive. In our culture today, in our society today, our world today, you have more access to biblical teaching than ever before. I mean, even in, 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 Jesus, in the day that Paul's writing here on the island of Crete, there were false teachers, but if you wanted to listen to a false teacher, you had to find them, go to their house or go to their speaking and listen to them and then spend time. You know, you had to, had to put in some effort. You had to do some stuff. Now, false teachers pop up on your Facebook because people share some stupid thing. And you listen to it and start getting trapped because, look, they're not, not all of them are obvious false teachers. Some of them sound pretty good. Some of them, 90% of what they say sounds good and is right, but it's that 10% that's destructive. Is that 10% of the prosperity gospel? That, yeah, Jesus died for you and all this, but you know what? Jesus wants you to have everything you, you want. Just say it, pray it, and claim, you know, name it and claim it, and God's going to give you everything your heart's desire, and God doesn't want you to suffer, and God's going to make you rich and wealthy, and God's going to do all this stuff for you. And does God want good things for you? Yeah, Jesus came to give us life and get it more abundantly. But that, He didn't save you to make you rich. You know how I know? I'm saved, and I ain't rich. Anybody else? Because we need to talk. But I could very easily say, God, God wants you to sow that, that seed faith. You give me $100 and God will bless you with 10000 It's false teaching. It's just, as Paul says, it's just to get rich. Just to make yourself feel better. So you have to evaluate the teachers that you listen to. Who are you allowing to speak truth in your life. What do the people that you listen to, the sermons you listen to, the radio, the podcast, the books you read, who, what do they focus on? Do they focus on the grace of God towards you and the power of a new life that it gives you? Or they focus on a list of things you need to do to please God. Every religious tradition focuses on things to do instead of the grace of God. They focus on ritualistic behavior and a standard, a ritualistic tradition and a standard of behavior. We should be listening to teachers that are focused on the word of God and the grace that God has given us, the love God has given us, and the grace and love he commands us to give to others. And what that grace and what that love prompts us to do not what we are supposed to do to earn grace and love, but you've been freely given grace and love, and because you've been given grace and love, this is what it prompts you to do. This is how it prompts you to live. So evaluate the religious teachings you receive. Secondly, evaluate your sincerity as a believer. Here's what I mean. Do you see in your life evidence of God changing you, of God working in your life to make you a different creature. Look, we are great at looking at someone else's life and evaluating whether they're being changed by God. I can, we are great at looking at other people or other groups and saying, they're not changed. You know, God's not really, they're not really saved or they don't really have this thing in their life. We're great at looking at other people, but Paul says, don't look, don't worry about other people. Worry about you. Look at you. And say, God, are you changing me? Do you yearn for a relationship with God? Do you miss his fellowship when it's not there because of sin? Do you want to be a better person, a better believer, a better wife, a better husband, a better father, better mother, better employee, better child, better friend? Do you realize that you haven't arrived yet? You may be better than you were, but you haven't arrived 
no matter who you are, if you are alive today, God's still working on you and you still got a long way to go. Because it's not like, here, because we talk about, say, oh, you know, God's working in your life until to make you in the image of Christ and you won't be in the image of Christ until so you see him face to face. And so we think, oh, I'm going to get where I'm 99% perfect, then I'll die and go to heaven. No, 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 no. You're not going to get anywhere near perfect. You'll be better, but you're going to be nowhere near perfect until you die. And then it's like an instant, woohoo, now you're just like Jesus. Now you're not going to sin. Your old nature is truly gone, but you're battling that flesh the day you die. But do you want to be a better person? Is it, if it's not happening in your life, it's because of one of two things. It's true. Either you haven't understood the gospel of grace or the truth of what grace does in your life hasn't really settled in your heart. Titus 2.11, Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So we got to ask yourself, has it appeared to my life? Have I, am I... Going to heaven because God's grace on my life, because he did for me what I could never do, or do I think I've earned it somewhat? Am I truly saved because I put my faith in the shed blood, the resurrected body of Jesus Christ only, or is that just one step I've done? Have I truly received the grace of God? Is my life being changed because of it? You know, Titus teaches us a, a valuable truth. God's grace does more than save you. It changes your life. Religion can't do that. Only a relationship with Jesus does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.